Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. This is Russell Stevenson. In studio today, we have Dr. Craig Harleen, professor of history at Brigham Young University and author of A World Ablaze, The Rise of Martin Luther and the Birth of the Reformation. Thanks for joining us today. I'm glad to be here. The purpose of this podcast is to talk about historical issues that are of relevance to the Latter-day Saint community. One thing that we see in how Latter-day Saints talk about the Reformation, about Martin Luther and about other reformers, is that we tend to see it as an essential part of how Mormonism came to be, ultimately as a step forward towards the development of Mormonism. I'm curious what your take is on that, because sometimes in so doing, we tend to talk about there being the Dark Ages and then there being the Reformation. Is that demarcation appropriate, or is there another way of conceptualizing right. that? Well, I'm sure you know there was a conference at BYU a few years ago, and a big volume that came out of that that addressed this very issue more thoroughly than I can right now. And they did it very well, I think. And it suggests that I think that there are new views emerging of how we should understand the world between the time of the ancient Christians and Joseph Smith. I'm not sure there is an LDS view anymore. I always ask my students in my Reformation class on the first day, what do you know about the Reformation? Or what's your impression of it, rather, before we start this class? And it's always pretty superficial. I don't think most people really have a strong sense of it either way, except that the time period after Jesus was bad. <laughs> so, or they're just mostly vague about it. And I don't, I, but I don't think there's the same negativity that there was when I was a kid in the 60s. Then we definitely got the great and abominable church still. And I don't sense that as much anymore. It's rather a sort of vagueness that they have. Most people have heard the name Luther. They don't really know what he did. Mormons still regard him as this, yeah, a kind of hero. And maybe for various reasons that could be true, but most of the things that Luther was against, Mormons would be for. <laughs> and one of the things my students learned by the end of the Reformation class is that they have a lot more in common with Catholics than they do with Protestants. Over the course of looking at your book, I, I got a sense of, of the kind of person that Luther was. And when he was this great debater, right? He was a, you know, he really enjoyed the, the disputation. And how would that kind of approach to theology play out in Latter-day Saint communities today, do you think? Well, he came from a different culture. He was a professor, and that's where all the disputing came in. Disputation was considered one of the leading forms of arriving at truth. And today we still might have debates or so on it universities, but it tends to be lectures instead in the form of visiting speakers or in regular classes. And we have discussion in classes. It tends not to be the same formal sort of disputation that existed in universities at the time of Luther. So he argued all the time because that was the culture. And nowadays the culture, whether Mormon culture or American culture, it's not as strongly geared toward that. Certainly there are debating teams and debating clubs and so on. I think in England you have more of a tradition of that sort of full-on debating and disputing. That's why he was arguing so much like that. A few of Martin Luther's touchstone issues, I mean, the things that really mattered to him, you know, issues such as, like, regarding works versus grace or on, you know, the use of indulgences. As you said earlier, the things that Martin Luther was against, 
are the same things that Latter-day Saints would be for. Would you unpack that for us? You'll start with the thing that he cared about most, and that was how you're saved. Everybody, every theologian at least, pretty much agreed that you were saved by grace. But then there was always a qualifier. Grace through what? Grace through something else, right? It wasn't just a question of whether you were saved by works or grace. It was a question of how grace went together with works. The system that Luther grew up in and the reason he entered the monastery and the reason he had such these pangs of conscience, that system said that you were saved through grace. Basically, do the best you can and Jesus will do the rest. That sounds a lot like you're saved by grace after all you can do in the, in the usual way that's interpreted. And that just didn't satisfy him because a really sensitive soul like his could always find something else wrong in inside himself in, in, in which he could question himself saying, how do I know that I'm doing all that I can because I see that I could still do this, right? So he's this tormented soul. He's really a sensitive soul. And he just can't ever feel like he's satisfying God. He's not sure that he's doing the best that he can. You reference in the book that he probably suffered from what we would call today as over-scrupulousness. Well, they called it that then. Mm. Yeah. The monks, this was their occupation. Remember, he was a monk before he was a professor or before he was a, a PhD student even. But the monks called it over-scrupulousness or the bath of hell. They understood this was an occupational hazard that if your occupation is to look inside yourself most of the day for sins, you were going to find them. And you could really drive yourself really crazy, almost literally, right? You could be so worried because you, you can. You can always find something else that you could do better. So that was how his confessors approached him. They would say, look, everybody faces this. Everybody knows that they have something wrong with him. The, the official verbiage was, right, you say by grace, and your job is to do all that lies within you. And he's like, how do I know that I'm doing all the lies with me? He can never get a satisfactory answer to that question. At one point, he has followers who are really holding him up on a pedestal. And he says, no, no, listen, I'm a, quote, poor, stinking maggot fodder just like you. Yeah. It comes out of that very experience. Even after he had his big moments and so on, he still would doubt. And the rest of his life, he would doubt. But even in his good moments, he would know that he was flawed and it was the flaws that made him believe more in grace basically the answer to his question was if doing all that lies within you is impossible then there must be another solution and so his solution was you're saved by grace through just assenting to letting god save you it's no longer saying that you have to do all you can because the problem was how do you know that and you could ask that of anybody how do you really know that so his answer was to say since you can't know that, just give it up. Just give it up and realize that you're saved by Jesus. Do everything you want, you'll still be saved by Jesus. And if you accept that, you'll be a lot happier. Now, some of these disputations that he had with you know, people such as uh, Johann Eck and others, you know, they are doing some pretty fine analysis of this or that scriptural verse. And it seems to me that in, especially in 21st century Mormonism, well, we have this general sense that, you know, you do have to put forward some kind of effort and then, you know, grace picks up the rest, as it were. We don't really have the same kind of exacting theological sensibilities that, that he did. 
That's probably true. We're usually content with more of this. Uh, it's a mix of grace and works, right? I mean, that's usually what it always comes down to when you hear it in the Sunday school class. So at the level of popular culture or whatever. I mean, I think there are some Mormon thinkers who might make a more sophisticated argument either way. But it's usually left this kind of vague thing that you need grace and works. And since you don't know exactly what that combination is, you just do everything you can. But again, to sensitive souls... It raises that question, how do you know? Other people might be very satisfied with that. And there were plenty of medieval Catholics who were satisfied with that system, but it just didn't satisfy Luther and others like him. Another major issue that I mean, played a role in his ultimate disaffection from the Roman Catholic Church is the, the place of indulgences and whether they were efficacious. I know that the way it's typically conceptualized, not just amongst uh, 21st century Latter-day Saints, but in general, is that essentially you're paying for the forgiveness of sins, and we sort of laugh and mock that. Uh, But there certainly was an undergirding theology driving this. Yeah, there had been since the Crusades. That's really when indulgences were invented around 1100. So they'd been around for about 400 years by now. And this was the issue that made him famous, of course. Justification by grace through faith most people didn't really care about. He tried having a big disputation about it, and some people showed up, but there was no after effect. He thought it would rock everybody's world, right? All these theologians would be upset, or they'd all want to come and dispute with him. Nobody really cared. And the reason why is because the church itself hadn't really determined that issue, exactly how grace worked. And in fact, he drew upon some medieval thinkers, in this. He wasn't the first to come up with this idea of justification by grace through faith. This is a reason why his idea on that wasn't even condemned until the 1540s by the Central Catholic Church. But it was indulgences that got him into trouble. The reason why is that it was the job of professors to dispute and debate subjects that hadn't been settled by the church. That was their job, professors of theology especially. Justification by grace was one of those subjects. And so he was just doing his job when he did that. Indulgences, the theology behind them, also had not been settled by the church. But indulgences were not just another unsettled subject. They were really sensitive because of the person who was ultimately in charge of them, and that was the Pope. What Luther saw was that after these 400 years of practice, that indulgences had become abused. And he wasn't the only one to see this. There were a lot of people who complained about them in the 14th and 15th, as well as in the 16th centuries. And some of them have gotten into big trouble as well. One was locked up for 10 years in prison and so on, as well as for other statements that he'd made. So Luther was hardly the first to recognize this. Erasmus had already criticized them in some detail and much more humorously than Luther. By the time uh, Luther got on the subject, yeah, he, he felt like there were indeed a lot of abuses. The idea of indulgence was that Christ and the saints had done more good works than they needed for their own salvation. And those excess works were in a thing called the treasury of merits. And that treasury was controlled by the church, specifically by the Pope. So the Pope could dispense those excess goods to people who had done certain acts of penance for their sins and who just felt in need of these excess good works. And that was the form of an indulgence. Indulgence means kindness. So it was a kindness extended by the church. What the indulgence typically did was not to forgive your sins, but to forgive the punishment that was attached to your sin. In other words, if you went to confess, the confessor would require you to to make your confession of your sin and 
would absolve you, but then it would also give you a punishment. And this usually involved a pilgrimage or maybe a certain number of prayers or something like this, maybe a donation. The indulgence was designed to relieve that punishment. So it wasn't designed to relieve or, or to give forgiveness of your sins. It was designed to relieve that punishment. And this was necessary because sometimes people got sick. They couldn't carry out the pilgrimage they'd been assigned to do or various other reasons. And so there were legitimate reasons why a bishop especially might, under the authority of the Pope, grant somebody an indulgence. By the time of Luther, though, many people understood this to be a straight financial transaction as forgiveness of sins. They didn't understand these finer points of theology that were behind it. And when Luther first started criticizing them, he said, look, the theology behind indulgence is it's okay. It's the practice that's bad. And so people just need to understand. Them. But then Within a year, he was criticizing the theology as well. He just didn't think that it really held up, that there's no such thing as a treasury of merits, that the saints were humans just like we are. It was impossible for them to have excess goods and, and so on. But he was very slow. Uh, not slow. He wasn't immediate in coming to these kinds of conclusions and, and criticizing them. But this was what made him famous because it involved the Pope. There was justification by grace did not. Luther, he had his own ideas of who the heretics were and who the... You know, who the radicals were, especially the Anabaptists. Would you comment on who the Anabaptists were, you know, within the, the milieu of Luther? Well, the Anabaptists came just a little after Luther, and he anticipated that they would come because, I mean, he's a very strict Bible interpreter himself, and he knew that their people would come along reading the Bible in kind of the same spirit that he did, who would say, oh, look, you know, there's nothing here about uh, infant baptism, and he anticipated that. And in that case, he decided to oppose those who were arguing for a strict biblical interpretation. They believed that, that a baby or even a young child could not decide for himself or herself about the decision to be baptized. And so it had to be made as an adult. And Anabaptist means, you know, a, a second baptism. It was a derogatory term, just like most religious nicknames are. And the Anabaptists, they also believed pretty strongly in the separation of church and state. That's right, and Luther did not. <laughs> Luther <laughs> believed, well, let's put it this way. Calvin and Zwingli, who were two other reformers at the time, believed that the church and the state should basically be as one. And they were very positive about the state. Luther saw the state as a necessary evil. It was to tame naturally evil people when they got out of line. And a prince could also kind of be in charge of the church, but really it was up to the church the clergy themselves, to kind of direct things. Uh, Luther, not a separation of church and state, not the same unity as Calvin and Swingley, though, either, more as a necessary evil. What kinds of parallels might we draw, or lessons might we draw, in looking at Luther when we understand the 21st century relationship between Mormonism and you know, kind of American nationalism and the American nation-state? Luther certainly believed that the true religion, which he believed he was putting forward, should be supported by the state. And so, of course, there are Americans who believe that as well. So I, I think that comparison is pretty obvious. The Anabaptists didn't have the kind of separation of church and state that was a positive thing. It was more of a negative thing, right? And it was more the sense of, we don't want anything to do with the state because we're running our own little society here. Within their society, everything was united. So you could say there was a unity of church and state within Anabaptist society. But yeah, it was more to keep themselves free from the state. There are people within many societies probably, especially where there's an official religion or some in American society, 
who want a more positive view that it's the church isn't to be free of the state or the state isn't to be free of the church. The church is to exert a good influence on the state. And that almost strikes me as reflective of different stages of Mormonism because in the mid to late 19th century, you have a number of Latter-day Saints who are exhibiting this kind of separatist impulse, wanting to have an independent kingdom in the Intermountain West, which you might see as being somewhat similar to the Anabaptist yes. tradition. Whereas later on in the 20th and 21st centuries, you end up seeing more of the Lutheran or even uh, Calvinesque approach. Yeah, I think that's right. At first, the separation is really very Anabaptist. And then kind of joining in and not only saying stay out of my business, but can we contribute to the state? That's, that's much more Calvinesque as we mean it. Not as far as they would have gone, though. They really did have this kind of unified theory of church and state. One of the major points of contention about papal authority was the interpretation of Matthew chapter 16 and John chapter 21. Who is the pope or who is the head of the church? And, of course, in Matthew 16, Jesus tells Peter, upon this rock thou shalt build the church. And whereas many people interpreted that to mean papal authority, Luther said, no, that actually refers to the faith as a whole. The rock was the body of believers, right? The community of believers. That's what he believed. And in fact, he believed more specifically it was their faith, right? So faith was the rock, not Peter himself or the authority of Peter, but faith itself was the rock. And by faith, he meant a very specific thing. He meant, just as he did with his doctrine of salvation, which was the heart of everything else, he meant faith that Jesus would save you if you merely assented to letting him save you. It seems that over the course of you know, these few years, Luther seems to be doing all right. At least he's relatively safe. But it's when he begins to tacitly and eventually explicitly attack the authority of the Pope, that's when he's coming under real scrutiny and facing the potential for excommunication. When he criticized indulgences, some people saw from the beginning that the implication was this was a, a, an attack on the Pope. Luther didn't mean it that way. He went out of his way to say this is not an attack on the Pope. He ended some of his theses by saying, I hope these are not in conflict with the doctrine of the church and so on. So he was trying very hard not to offend the Pope. He wrote a special explanation for the Pope, sending it to him to say exactly what he meant. And he's saying, look, some people in the church are ruining your authority because of the false way they're preaching indulgences. We need to preach indulgences in the right way and so on. There were some people from the start who recognized that this had implications for the view of, of the Pope. Luther didn't start attacking him explicitly until 1519, 1520, and that's when it really began, right after the debate that you mentioned in Leipzig. It's known as the Leipzig debate or the Leipzig disputation in 1519. That's when Luther himself was stunned into realizing how against the Pope he was. And all the historical reading he'd done as well convinced him that the Pope's authority just wasn't what the Pope claimed. The Pope could be the Bishop of Rome. That, he had no problem with that. But as far as being the universal head of the church, he just he didn't see that. And as far as interpretation of Matthew 16 and how they interpreted the idea of the keys, Luther just thought that was completely wrong. So that was what he attacked. But when he started doing that, he got more and more desperate. He began to believe that he was going to be executed. When you believe that, you get more and more excessive in what you say and more desperate in what you say. By 1520, he was saying all kinds of angry things against the Pope. That's what made him really popular in Germany, especially, but in other parts of Europe as well. There was a lot of anti-papal sentiment in Germany for a whole variety of reasons. People latched on to Luther, not because of justification by grace through faith, but because of the perception that he was this kind of enemy of the Pope and the defender of the German church. 
he was really torn by all this, right? I mean, it's like getting the endorsement of the Ku Klux Klan. You know, I mean, you want all the support you can, but you don't necessarily want it from these people. And so he would criticize those and say, look, that's not what I'm saying here. This is about justification by grace through faith. And you're turning it into this kind of German rebellion. And he was really against violence. So the last thing he wanted to see was some kind of armed rebellion against the church in Germany. He believed that the word itself should be the source of revolution and this should come from within people. As I recall, he used some pretty violent rhetoric in regards to the Anabaptist uh, radicals, yes? We have to remember in that context, almost all the disputers used excessive language. And he wasn't much different from everybody else in that. If you read any of these disputations where notes have survived, they're all using this kind of these nasty attacks. Right? It was just part of the culture of disputation. Yeah, he was against these people who would save baptism until you were adults. He was also against anybody who promoted violence, including the peasants, when that began in the 1524, 25, the Peasants' War. The only way to stop that violence was through more violence, he said, mainly by killing the peasants. Right? That really made him unpopular among some people. The title of your book is A World Ablaze. Why did you choose that title? Well, he wrote a letter in which he mentioned that. That phrase comes from him. He writes to the Pope, again, his first letter to the Pope, explaining what his theses, 95 theses against indulgences were about. He sent not only the theses, but an explanation for each one. Whenever there was a disputation, you you asserted a statement or a thesis, and then you would offer proof or explanations, as they were called. Luther published not just the 95 theses themselves or 95 statements, but then a long tract in which he offered proof for each of the statements or explanations. He sent that to the Pope. In the letter to the Pope, he said, look, let me explain now this thing which my critics say the world is all ablaze with, right? These 95 theses, and that's where the phrase comes from. That moment in which he submits the 95 theses for public scrutiny, it's often, again, it's romanticized in our collective memory as this this great act of defiance. And yet the way you're describing it to me now, you know, he's sending it to the Pope rather directly. He's not seeing it as an inherently uh, subversive act, rather an invitation for discussion. That was how he understood his job as a professor. Again, as a professor of theology, his job was to try to discuss issues that had not been settled by the church. And so he thought this was a perfectly legitimate thing to do. But the culture of disputation among theologians pretty much said, well, except for indulgences. We're not going to touch that because that's... That's the third rail. Yeah, the Pope has authority over that. To him, it was routine to discuss these kinds of subjects. And it was to his critics, who just didn't want to stand any criticism of the Pope, that he had gone too far, you know. Now, you mentioned that Luther was afraid that he would be executed. Was that fear well-founded? Yeah, there was a real possibility of that. Other people had been excommunicated for heresy, including Jan Hus. Other people saying similar things hadn't necessarily all been hadn't necessarily been excommunicated or ex- executed but they they'd gotten into trouble there was a real fear about that he was nervous about it all the time this was where the protection of his particular prince was oh, frederick, crucial right? yes. frederick who later became called frederick the wise but prince frederick of saxony he was a man interested in humanism and learning he didn't necessarily have a university education himself, but he established a university in Wittenberg, and that was where Luther was his star professor. So he had a great respect for learning, engaged in some learning himself, and he really trusted the judgment of experts. So he said, I trust the carpenter about cabinetry. I trust the 
shoemaker about shoes. I trust the theologian about theology. I mean, he really had a respect for expert opinion. And so he said, until Luther is proven to be a heretic, I'm not going to uh, execute him or I'm not going to send him off to Rome to be tried there. So as long as he had the protection of his prince, Luther was in, in pretty good shape. Had he lived in another principality, maybe there would have been a prince against him. Maybe they would have sent him off to Rome, but it really was precarious. And that's what I tried to bring out in the book is it's so easy to look back and look act as if this was inevitable. But when you look at how precarious it was all along the way, it's, it's, it is really amazing that he survived. What was Luther's relationship like with other reformers, such as John Calvin or Zwingli or John Knox? Right. These came much later. Zwingli was one of the first that he encountered. Knox, not really. I mean, Knox came around later, but... Calvin only came on the scene in the late 1530s, and so that's toward the end of Luther's life as well. With Zwingli, he had the, his most famous confrontation. There were other reformers besides them, mostly in South Germany and what's now Switzerland, France, and so on, and they would meet for conferences. They would write to one another. In the late 1520s, Luther got into it with a number of them, especially with Zwingli over the Eucharist or what Mormons would call the sacrament. They tried various times to come together, the various colloquies, as they were called. The most famous one is in 1529 at Marburg. They came up with 15 points that they wanted to discuss and agree on, and they could agree on all of them except the Eucharist. It was because Zwingli insisted that the sacrament should be understood merely symbolically, and Luther said, it says, this is my body. And Zwingli is saying, how do you get to say when it's literal and when it's figurative? You know, in some other parts of the Bible, you're saying it's figurative, but here you're saying it's literal. So this is my body. He didn't mean it the same way that Catholics did, that there was this transubstantiation. But he did believe that the Spirit of God was present in the sacrament. Zwingli did not. All right. And so you think to yourself, you know, that's just a small theological thing. But really, how you understood the sacrament was crucial because that was what gave you your community identity. This was the big communitarian moment was when you took the sacrament or you took the Eucharist together. And as if you didn't understand it the same way, this really threatened unity. It was seen at least by a lot of people, including Luther and Zwingli. So what that meant is it prevented Protestants from really having this united political front. And they needed it because they were not organized. Catholic states and princes the Catholic Church was built into Catholic states. In Protestant states, it was assumed there should be some kind of religion, but, you know, people are arguing it over it often. And so when you couldn't come to agreement on the matter of the Eucharist, you threatened political unity. And this cost the Protestants some political points, probably in the late 1520s and early 1530s, a chance to really unify them. And Zwingli and Luther never did. These were the two of the largest movements. They never did unify Zwingli ended up dying, you know, fighting in a battle in Switzerland, and, and, and Luther became a little more isolated from the southern Germans. Other, some other reformers became more popular. Luther was especially famed or popular in central Germany, eastern Germany, the north, Scandinavia, and so on. But you know, he wasn't necessarily universally loved. So for Latter-day Saints who are looking to interpret the Reformation in the context of their faith and in the context of this general narrative that we have about the restoration of the gospel in 1830, what would you say is the most historically responsible way to do so? You can see it in so many different ways, and it can be a very personal thing instead of a matter of history or something. This becomes a matter of big you know, theological interpretation. I'm reluctant to try to say that there is a way to do this. Maybe what's your way? Well, I don't even know that I have a particular way except to say that it really strikes me that what Luther was against was what 
many Mormons might be for. <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of upsets the whole narrative, right? It kind right, of upsets this idea. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, and this really got me interested in the Reformation, when I was 12 and I went to the Visitor Center in Salt Lake, and they had this exhibit on basically Christian history and the Mormon view of it. And here was Jesus, then here were some ancient Christians, and then here were these hooded, shrouded figures of medieval monks. And then all of a sudden here were Luther and Calvin and you know these other reformers bringing the world closer to truth. But the truth, if you believe in Luther's truth, is quite against this idea of being saved by doing everything you can. It's quite against that. He believes with Paul, it's either grace or works. It cannot be a combination. It has to be one or the other, and he's sure it's grace because no human can do enough to save themselves or do anything to save themselves, in fact. And so he would never allow for any kind of infusion of, oh, maybe a few works are necessary. Or the classic Catholic view, if you want to get into it a little more, is that, as Augustine said, you do enough to get what's called an operative grace. You have enough good within you to get this operative grace. When you arrive at operative grace, then you get the grace of God that allows you to become saved. It gives you this kind of perfection that you need or whatever. There are other Catholic views of this too as well. But all of them basically assumed that you had a little bit of good in you. You had enough good to get God on your side. And so you had to earn grace from a certain point. And Luther just rejected all those. How do you ever know that you've done enough to please God? You just cannot know this. And nobody can do everything perfectly. And so therefore, this is the only way. Now, his critics, of course, didn't like this because they said this just makes people lazy. You believe in grace. And Luther said, if you believe that, you don't understand grace. Because what happens is when you realize you cannot save yourself, your heart becomes so sorrowful. And then when you're, you feel the sense of reprieve, you're so grateful and so glad. You do more good works than you ever would have done when you were trying to earn points with God. His famous saying was, good works don't make a good man a good man does good works. A good man being the one who's been already justified by God. Right, you've you've you're made righteous. You get the grace that you need, and from that point, you accept that you're just sinful, but you're happy because you're able to do all kinds of good things. Actually, you're being happy it results in acts of love toward your neighbor, and so on. So you end up actually doing more good works. Is his argument? Do you think this was informed to some extent by his intense sensitivity to personal weakness and to sinfulness and to kind of the frailty of the human condition? Yeah, I think he universalized. I think he believed that the way he felt about all this was how everybody else should feel too. He saw how frail he was and how hopeless and what a sinner and therefore everybody else ought to see it the same way. So he believed he'd come to an objective solution. That's why I say there were others, especially in the monastic tradition, who'd come to some of the same conclusions that Luther had, but you didn't, you haven't heard as much about them. They kind of kept it to themselves or they didn't make such a big fuss about it because they weren't necessarily sure that they'd found this universal truth. You mentioned how when you were a child, you went to this museum exhibit and you see you know, kind of how reformers existed within the Latter-day Saint memory. And you know, eventually you choose to enter the academy and become a historian of the Reformation. And I recall a story that you once told, how when you first entered graduate school, you actually believed that through the Spirit and through spiritual revelation, you wouldn't actually need to use primary sources. Well, it wasn't quite that drastic. But yeah, and I don't know that I believed it. I think I, I secretly almost subconsciously. Now, I was conscious, so barely consciously thought, I'm going to get special help, you know, because I'm Mormon. 
when there aren't documents, I'm going to get insights into where there should have been documents, you know. And so I have to admit, that was how I felt. And what I became to realize is it just, it didn't happen that way. And so I had to learn it, learn the hard knocks of really understanding what was going on in that world and learn it on its own terms. And again, I became more convinced that that was the best way to approach it. There's a major historiographical debate about this, but one could argue that at approximately the same time as Luther's initial agitations, you also have the rise of what has been called the Counter-Reformation, right? You know, the Society of Jesus, you've got Teresa of, of Avila's, you know, mysticism. Could you comment on the relationship between Lutheran, to use a somewhat, somewhat of an anachronistic term, Lutheran Protestantism and this counter-reformation impulse within the Catholic Church. Yeah, well, in fact, those terms are a little bit distorting and confusing because Luther's own sense of reform was part of a tradition of Catholic reform that was already there. He wasn't Lutheran. He was Catholic. He was a monk. So it's a little bit distorting to say, you know, he's kind of trying to resist the Pope. He wasn't trying to resist the Pope at first. Eventually he was. But he wasn't even trying to replace Catholicism. He just wanted the locus of authority in Catholicism to be shifted away from Rome. Now, as time went on, he came up with a number of innovations in theology. So the tradition of reform was already underway in Catholicism, and Luther was part of that. There were big reformers before him. There was a reformer in the 14th century who was so close to Luther, he was seen as, you know, kind of the proto-Lutheran. Then again, in the late 15th and early 16th centuries, there were all kinds of reformers around Luther. So this Reformation was already underway before there was a movement against Protestantism. That's what counter-Reformation means. Catholic historians prefer to call it a Catholic Reformation. It was already happening. After the Protestants came on, called Protestants from 1529 on, which was also a derogatory name, essentially, then you can speak of movements against Protestantism and counter-reform. And if you look at the Council of Trent in 1545, for instance, this is the big Catholic council, the biggest one until Vatican II in the 20th century, really. It was a major council, and at that point, they basically went down the Protestant program and refuted every single point. And at that point, you can say this is a counter-reform, that's for sure. That's when they condemned justification by grace through faith, by the way, which was Luther's, that was his big central doctrine. They finally condemned it at that point, but that hadn't really been something that needed condemning before then. And, and now they were just doing it to distinguish themselves from Protestantism. I mean, religions tend to do this. They tend to first say what they are not. They want to be separate from something, especially when they're new. Right? This is what we are not. So now these Protestant religions come on the scene and Catholicism wants to make clear this is what we are not. So you're raised in a Latter-day Saint household, and you know, as you said, you first became interested in the Reformation after visiting this, this exhibit. What was it like entering the academy as a Latter-day Saint future scholar who's studying a world that is somewhat removed from your own experiences? I mean, there is a long and robust tradition of historians who write on this, and you're coming at it from this distinctive Mormon perspective. At first, certainly, that's what you yeah. do. It's like going to a foreign country. The first thing you do is you compare it to what you know, right? So when you study a new subject, that's what you do as well. But I quickly became convinced by the approach to history, which says that you need to try to understand things on the terms of the actors themselves. This is, ironically, in order to help it be of more use to you. Maybe the biggest reason to study the past is to get more to think with. And in order to think well with it, you have to understand what they were doing. 
obviously, but you have to understand it, in my view, on their terms. If you understand it on your terms, you're probably going to distort it more than usual. You're going to distort it anyway because you don't live in that world. But it is possible and worth doing to try to get it as, as close as you can. When you do that, then you can say, aha, now this is how I can see how I could convert this to my own world or translate it to my own world, and I can see how this might be valuable to me. You know, it's like understanding that Luther, when he used all that nasty language in his disputations, that was pretty common. Or when he was putting up 95 theses, that was the most ordinary thing in the world to do. If you look at it through your lens, you distort it. You, you're thinking, oh, that's a big deal, you know, or what a nasty guy, you know, but that's, that's just not how it should be understood. And so, in other words, you've got to get it right on its own terms. And when you've done that, then you have a better chance of getting some insight for your own life. I was quickly persuaded to the value of that approach, mostly because it seems like it's going to stay fresher. When you look at the past through your own lens, it's automatically going to change and it's going to change in 10 years. But when you look at it through their terms, it seems like that's going to last. You know, you can, you can have something that uh, you can hang on to and, and, and try to make sense of. So when I tried to understand it through their terms, I, st- I, I kind of gave up trying to say, gee, how am I supposed to understand this, you know, as a Mormon? It was more that why can't I just appreciate it on its own terms and try to make sense of it and realize the world was a lot more complicated than that tidy little version that I learned. I mean, most Mormons don't know much, as I said, about these years anyway. What they do know is very distorted. What I've seen from my students is that they really like to learn about what it was like. And so why not learn it as accurately as possible? That's how we want others to see us, right? We would want others to study us as we would recognize ourselves. So why wouldn't we study others in a way that they would recognize themselves as well? So I think that's an excellent note to end on. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Harley, and we've benefited from your insight. Thanks a lot. Be sure to check out LDSperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.